It's good to see you this morning. Let me invite you to open with me in your Bibles to John chapter 17. We can say that now after, after several, several weeks. We have uh, just finished now working through the farewell discourse that Jesus has delivered to his disciples. What we've seen in those past several chapters is that our Lord has worked very successfully to comfort his disciples. And he's comforted them in a number of ways. He's comforted them through most of what he said regarding his heavenly departure. Uh, He's told them, my going away from you is going to make a way for you to be with the Father and to be with me forever. He's told them, my going is not going to leave you alone because in going, another helper will be sent to you. And in fact, with his presence, with the presence of the Holy Spirit, you will be with both my presence and that of my Father. And so my going is not going to leave you alone. It won't even leave you without me. He's comforted them with news of of what he will give them to do while he's away. He's told them, you will have much to do in my absence. He has commissioned them to put his love on display within the community that he is creating and to represent him in the world by being ambassadors of his kingdom. We've seen throughout this discourse, Jesus speak to them on each of these things regarding his heavenly departure. Most recently, we've also seen him comfort them regarding his now very near physical departure in physical death. And he's told them temporary suffering, great suffering, is coming. But not only will it be temporary, it will be eternally productive in what he accomplishes through it. And even though it was clear that they did not understand everything that Jesus said to them, all of it gave reason for a sense of safety. And it's because of that that it seems to me that the closing prayer then, which is all of John chapter 17, his closing prayer to these words is so very fitting. Our plan this morning is to try to take an overview look at the whole chapter, the whole of chapter 17. And next week, we'll take a closer look at several elements of what he prays, uh, especially some things. There, there's so much that he says here with just tremendous implication for us as far as how we think about God and, and how we think about and understand his ways. And we'll look at some of those things specifically next week. But there's a central claim that I would want to make as we're starting this morning, and I hope to demonstrate this before we're finished. It's that Jesus' prayer here should have the effect of bolstering our assurance of salvation as Christians, and specifically our confidence that a day really is coming. I mean, in your future and in mine, if we know the Lord Jesus as our Savior, a day really is coming when we will see him face to face and be with him forever. I want us to see this morning how this prayer provides us with that confidence. And so if you're open to John chapter 17, I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. We're going to read the entire chapter, all all 26 verses. If you're able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's word?
John chapter 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world, Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you, for I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours." All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them, in the truth, your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, quite a prayer. It's a powerful thing, I think, to just hear it from beginning to end, all that our Lord lifts up for his people. Now, let's begin this morning by simply taking the whole thing 
and trying to see how it breaks into pieces. It's always helpful, I think, to try to find the natural outcome in the text itself, the natural outline, that is. Uh, it, it makes it easier to digest a thing like this uh, and to see how the parts relate to each other. And what I'm going to hold out to you this morning are four pieces of this that it fits nicely into. The first piece is verses 1 to 5. And what Jesus does here is he begins the prayer by announcing to the Father that he has finished the work that he was sent to accomplish. He says there, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Notice what he says here. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You hear twice there, the beginning and at the end of that, he prays asking the Father to glorify him, doesn't he? This piece is often described as Jesus starting the prayer by praying for himself. And in a sense, that's obviously true, but it seems to me it's only true in a, in a helpful way if we notice some things about what he's actually saying here. One is, in the first couple of verses in particular, that what he asks concerning himself is clearly a means to an end, isn't it? Glorify your son so that the son may glorify you. And he gives an example of this relationship in verse 2. He says, in the ESV it says, since you have given, it would be better translated just as or even as you have given. He's making a comparison here. He says, do this, glorify me so that I might bring you glory in the same way that you have authorized me, in the same way that you've given me authority for the purpose of granting eternal life, which he goes on to explain is the granting of a saving knowledge of God. You've given me authority so that I might glorify you in the work of revealing you. And in that same way, Father, I'm asking for this glory. So that's one thing we need to understand. He's praying for himself in order that he can accomplish his purpose of glorifying the Father. Another thing to, to understand is that the glory that he's praying for here involves not only the displaying of God's greatness that will happen on the cross. So John's gospel has been very dramatic in making plain something that's ironic, that's surprising to us, and that is that the cross of Jesus Christ is the pinnacle of the display of God's greatness on earth. We think of the cross as the moment of greatest darkness, and in that sense it is. But it's also the place where the truth about who God is is most clearly put on display as Jesus Christ lays down his life for his friends. That is a glory that's coming, and that's a glory that he's praying for. This display of God's greatness that will happen on the cross. But it's clearly not the only glory that he's praying about. He's also praying about glory in the sense of receiving honor. So there's two ways we can talk about glory. We can talk about it being displayed, and we can talk about it being received in praise. And he does both of those here. The second of those is where he goes in verses 4 and 5. 
And it's in light of that departure that he's speaking of, this return to the Father to receive the glory that he had with him before the world began. It's in light of that departure that the prayer here is even being made. Most of this prayer is a priestly intercession for his people whom he is about to leave. And it's the fact that he's about to leave them, clearly from what's going to come, that has led him to pray like this. So the start of this prayer, these first five verses, essentially explains the need for the rest of the prayer. As it leads him to the place where he says, I am departing from these whom you have given me. It leads very well to the second piece of the prayer, which is verses 6 to 10. Because Jesus is completing the work now that he came to accomplish, and because the glory of that completion includes his return to the Father, because of all of that, his disciples are in need of prayer. And so the prayer now turns to focus on them in verse 6. One really interesting thing to notice is how Jesus describes the people that he's praying for, how he describes his disciples. They are those, verse 6, who had belonged to the Father and who the Father had given to him. You see that description? They are those, verses 6 to 8, who had kept the words of God that Jesus had given to them. And notice verse 9 in particular. This people for whom he's praying, they represent a distinct group of human beings. In other words, Jesus goes out of his way here as he's praying to the Father to pray for this group whom the Father had given him, to pray for them and no one else. He is explicit in, in directing to the Father this particular prayer. He says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me. Now here the word world is clearly referring to the people of the world. I'm not praying here for the rest of mankind. I'm praying distinctly for those whom you have given to me. It's important for us to notice as we are going forward. There's some other distinctives to notice here about how he describes this group that he's praying for. One of them is in verse 10. He says, this is a people whose lives have brought glory to him. They brought glory to Christ. I think we might see before we're done why some have suggested that really this entire gospel of John is well summarized in this prayer that Jesus is praying. Because as he prays, the things he says constantly raise to our mind other things that John has recorded Jesus teaching. So here, for instance, as he makes the statement in verse 10, it can bring to mind for us what our Lord already taught in chapter 15 about his people. He told us there that they are branches connected to him. Do you remember that image of the vine and the branches? Those who belong to him are connected to him in this life-giving way, receiving life from him, and as a result, bearing fruit in him. It's the picture that he gave us. Our lives bear his fruit, and he is glorified as a result. And we see that even here as he's describing this group that he's praying for. One other thing to notice about the distinct group for whom he prays, we have to go down to verse 20 as we think about that. And notice the clarifying statement that he makes there. He goes out of his way in another sense here to say that this prayer is not just for these 11 men. He says, I do not ask for these only, 
but also for those who will believe in me through their word. It's one of those things that we'll doubtless be talking about more next week. But even now, we should let this sink in. And I would have us just think on this for a moment this morning. Can you hear in his prayer how deliberate the redemptive work of the Father and Son is being described? As Jesus talks to us here or lets us in on his prayer to the Father concerning their plan of redemption, he has described a particular people, a people that he says belong to God and have been given to Christ. He said this people is manifested by the fact that they don't just hear Jesus' words, they receive his words because they've been given eyes to see, they've been given ears to hear, as he puts it earlier in this gospel. They keep his words. That's what sets them apart. You even see that in verse 20, that beyond the 11, what shows anyone else to belong to this prayer is the fact that those others, quote, believe in him through their word, through the word of the apostles. It's all about the receipt of the message of the gospel. You see that unifying factor in this people? It is for them only that Jesus prays this priestly, intercessory prayer. And so we've seen so far that in his prayer, our Lord announces the occasion for it, that he is coming to the end, the completion of his work on earth. We see that he's announced who it is that he's praying for as he lifts up this prayer, namely those to whom he has given God's word, caused them to receive that word, those who have been given to him by the Father. This is what we've seen so far as we come through verse 10. But you notice we're still waiting to hear what he actually prays for, for these people. He hasn't actually prayed anything yet in terms of requests. Before we hear what he prays for them, let's notice one other piece here in this prayer in verses 11 to 14. Notice, thirdly, that Jesus announces why he's praying for them. And he gives two explanations amid verses 11 to 14. Let me read some of that to you. I'll start in verse 11. He says, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Down to verse 12. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you. You hear the reason that he is giving for praying for them in this moment? He's praying for them because they need it. He's praying for them because they are going to be in danger. The way he puts it here is this, he has guarded them. As long as he has been with them, he has guarded them, and now he is going away. Verse 14 adds more to this. He says, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. You can hear the danger there too, can't you? Both in verse 11 and 14, the source of the danger that he's bringing up here is the fact that these are going to continue to live in the world after he has departed from the world. It's what creates this necessity that he pray for them here. So he's announced his departure. 
He's declared who he's interceding for. He's explained why they need him to pray for them because they are facing danger. But it's only when we, when we listen to what he actually prays for them and, verse 20, for us, that we can understand the danger that he is concerned about. There are a number of dangers that we face. What is the danger that is driving him to pray in this high priestly, effectual, intercessory way for his people? That's what leads us to the fourth and final piece where we'll spend most of our time here, hearing what he actually asks of the Father on our behalf. Notice in verse 15, notice what he doesn't ask for. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world. Even though the danger to them comes from the very world around them and the fact that we live in this world, it's not removal from the world that our Lord asks of the Father. He does not will that we be removed from the world. It might surprise us at times to remember that he doesn't even will that we be spared all suffering at the hands of the world. All you have to do is glance back to the opening verses of chapter 16 and remember what he has told them to be expecting from life in this world. He painted them a picture of what is coming. Certainly there is much that our Father guards us from in this world, isn't there? It's a great deal. Uh, that he guards his children from. And for that matter, it's helpful for us to remember, there's much potential suffering in this world that God guards unbelievers from, isn't there? Unbelievers do not suffer every possible torment from life in this world. And why not? Why doesn't that happen? It's the providential hand of God's common grace that does that, that protects in those ways. And he protects us in that way as well. We could add to that, too, that as he is at work sanctifying us as his people, causing us to tremble at his word, to believe his promises and his warnings, to walk in his ways, as he does that in the lives of his children, by working in us like that, he very much protects us from some suffering in this world, doesn't he? I mean, how much suffering do we walk into as a result of not knowing or not heeding God's revelation? And so it's certainly true that he protects us from some suffering in this life, even just by the way that he leads and guides us as our Father. That's all true. But it's not what he has in mind as he prays for us here. The great concern for us that moves our Lord, our High Priest, to pray for us like this is a response to the great danger that we face. He's not praying for us in light of the little dangers that we face. Little dangers like pains, injuries, death, nothing so small as that. Those are not the dangers that he is praying about. No, the great danger in this life is that of being pulled away from Christ to our eternal destruction. It's the danger that he has in mind. And you can see that focus of his words in the example that he gave of Judas in verse 12. As he's speaking about the ways he has guarded his people, you remember what he said in verse 12, none of them has been lost, literally, none of them perished, except the son of destruction, 
that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He says of Judas that he perished. And yet what happened with Judas? Where's Judas in that moment? Nobody murdered Judas. He wasn't on death row in a jail cell. What happened to Judas? What happened was he had walked away from Christ to his everlasting destruction. That's what happened to Judas. That's the way that Jesus has said he has always guarded his people. And that's what he's now asking the Father to do for them as he leaves. Verse 15, keep them from the evil one. This is the protection that they will need as they live on in this world, as followers of Christ. As they reflect Christ by being not of the world, even as he is not of the world. It's important for us to to have that sense of Scripture's message about this life, that it poses a danger that we're supposed to be on guard against, a spiritual danger from the enemy. So, for example, 1 John 5, 19, John says of this world, of the post-ascension of Christ world, the world that you and I live in now, he says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 8, says of this world, the post-death, burial, resurrection, ascension of Christ, our world, he says, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so Jesus prays, asking for our protection in the world, protection directly from the evil one. If Jesus knows exactly what danger it is that we face, he also knows exactly how it is that we can be kept safe from that danger. They will only be safe if God sets them apart for himself. This is what Jesus prays for them and for us. There are three things we'll hear here that Jesus prays specifically for his disciples, and this is the first. He says, sanctify them. Father, sanctify them. It's a word, sanctify. This is a word that has to do with setting something apart, reserving it devoting it for God's use. It's all over the Old Testament and the sacrificial system that our Lord set up, that God set up there for his people. In the Old Testament, the priests were sanctified. They were set apart in this way. And for that matter, so were their clothes. So were the cups that they used at the altar, all of the equipment that were used and so on. Whatever is set aside for God is sanctified, is holy, It's the same word, devoted utterly to him. This is what our Lord prays for us, that the Father would sanctify us. We see that same intent with the word in verse 19, as Jesus speaks about himself. He is setting himself apart for his service to the Father. You see there in words that can surprise us if we don't understand them. He says, For their sake, I consecrate myself. It's the same word. I sanctify myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Jesus is setting himself apart for service to the Father. He told us elsewhere in John's gospel that the Father had already sanctified him. But it makes sense that he would speak to this decision, to this deliberate setting aside in view of the cross that is now just hours away. 
You can think of it this way. Both the priest who made atonement for sin in the Old Testament and the animal who was being slaughtered as the sacrifice, both of them were sanctified for their role before God. D.A. Carson described this very well when he said this. He said, thus, in language that applies equally well to the consecration of a sacrifice and the consecration of a priest, Jesus is said to consecrate himself. His sacrifice cannot be other than acceptable to his father and efficacious in its effect, since as both victim and priest, he voluntarily sets himself apart to perform his father's will. If you're like me, it's very helpful to see that connection as we read Jesus' words there about himself and what he is willing to do. Now, these days, when we think about and talk about sanctification, we're normally talking about something very specific. We're normally talking about uh, an, an increasing moral purity in the way that we live. So growing in sanctification in terms of growing in, in actual conformity to the image of Christ, uh, in our actions, uh, increasingly submitting our thoughts to the Word of God to be corrected, to be purified. It's usually what we're talking about when we use the word sanctification. And that's certainly a valid way to use the word. But in this context, it helps us to remember that that's only a valid use of that word because that kind of growth in purity is simply the obvious and natural result for something that has been consecrated for, the, for use for God. It's what ought to be the result of that setting aside for the purposes of God. Such a thing that has been set aside like that would then certainly strive, wouldn't it, to do what God wants and to hate what God hates. In other words, the living out of the status of being sanctified by God will depend upon knowing his purposes, knowing what pleases him and what displeases him. And so Jesus finishes the sentence the way that he does. He says, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. It has always been the case in this gospel. We've been in John's gospel for quite some time now, haven't we? It has always been the case that revealing whether one has been sanctified to God or not always comes down over and over again in what we have heard to the question of what we do with Jesus' words. What do we do with them? He said in John 14, 24, Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. This word that Jesus says to the Father, your word is truth. It is the same word that he has been bringing on this earth. So what does Jesus pray for his people? Well, he prays here that we would be preserved from the evil one. And that preservation is going to be both put on display and perpetuated as God sanctifies them before him, as God reserves them to himself. And so this is the first thing that he prays for his people. The second thing that he prays for us to this same end, he prays for our unity. I, 
I'm convinced that seeing this prayer for unity in the context that we're hearing it in will very much help us appreciate how valuable our unity with one another actually is. So please notice this. Notice that Jesus' driving concern for us in this prayer is our safety against the pull, against the darts of Satan himself. That's his concern. And to that end, in addition to this incredible prayer for our sanctification by the Father, notice that he prays to that end for unity. Is that what you would have expected him to pray for in this final, closing, effectual prayer to guard his people, that he would pray for our unity? I mean, in a thoroughly individualistic age like the one that we have all grown up in, that we have breathed and swam in our whole lives, it might even seem a bit silly, a bit of a waste of time. That's what you would pray is for our unity together? My salvation is between me and God. It's just me and Jesus, right? I go to church. What more do you want? In other words, what difference does it make how meaningfully unified I am with the people of God? Well, look, apparently the answer is quite a difference. Because this is the prayer that your Lord offers for you before he returns to the Father. It's the prayer that he offers in view of a very real threat posed by the world and by the prince of this world. What is it that we know that Satan does? A host of things. Satan tempts us with sin. Satan suggests. He confuses with slightly false narratives. He accuses us. And it's very true that the the content of the faith that we receive by the word of God provides us all that we need to resist him in those ways. So we have his warnings about sin's consequences. Romans 6.23 We have the true story about life and reality. John 1, 9 to 13. We have news that the cross has stripped Satan's accusations of any power. Colossians 2, 14. We have those things. As I'm by myself, I have those things in his word. And yet when the Lord saved me, he did not save me into a single-celled organism, did he? Rather, he saved me into a body. And why did he do that? He did that, my friends, because we really do need each other. We need each other. He has gifted us differently. He's given you gifts that he's not given to me, and vice versa, which means that he has left your gifting deficient in a number of ways. That fellow brothers and sisters are meant to augment, to complement, to create a body as opposed to an arm, or a nose, or a leg. And it's so telling here, hearing him pray for our unity in this context. It's so obviously important to our being able to carry out the mission that we're here for, to our being able to resist the devil, to continue to walk after the Lord Jesus to the end of our days. It's so obviously important to our ability to faithfully represent Christ in this earth in our families, in our neighborhoods, in all of our lives. This unity with one another in the body of Christ 
that you participate in or not is so important that Jesus can tie it twice here to the very possibility of the world recognizing that Jesus is sent from God. He says in verse 21, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And again, verses 22 and 23, and he speaks there of glory, glory that he has shared with us. And it's very clear, I think, in the context that it's this display of union with God that's being spoken of here as glory. He says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Obviously, there is so much more that could be said this morning about these first two things. But we're content this morning to notice that his high priestly interceding act of prayer for us here has come down to two requests. It's come down to the request for our sanctification and for our unity in the body of Christ. My friends, those are no small things. It's helpful to be reminded of that. There's a third thing he prays for us here now. It's probably not as difficult for us to remember that this one is no small thing. I suppose from our perspective, you could say that he saves the best for last, perhaps. It's the last thing that he prays for us. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. I say this to the believers in this place this morning, you whose faith is savingly fixed upon Christ. It's a question. Why is your future place in heaven more sure than the sun's rising tomorrow? You just read the reason why. Our Lord just asked the Father to bring you to be where He is so that you would see His divine glory. Yet another thing He's spoken of at many points in this gospel, isn't it? He's already told us that this safety, this 100% success rate of Jesus was the Father's will. He told us in John 6, 39, this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those whom he has given me. So that what he has just prayed here, asking the Father for, is a prayer that aligns perfectly with the Father's will. And of course, it must be aligned perfectly with the Father's will, because Jesus always does what is pleasing to the Father. Another thing he has told us, Christ Jesus is eternal God. And there are not two wills in the Godhead. There is one will. And for all of these reasons, Jesus always gets what he prays for. And as a result, my friends, your place in heaven's glory, if he has led you to repent of sin's domination and to trust in him alone, your place in heaven's glory is more sure than the sun rising tomorrow. It's such a precious passage for us because he not only 
asks for that, he goes so far as to supply some details to us of this experience. It can be easy, I think, to generally feel as if we have no idea whatsoever what heaven is going to be like. But that's not exactly true, is it? It's great mystery in a number of ways. It will be different. It will be, we will not be able to perceive now some of the reality of what it will be. But he has not told us nothing as to what this destination will be for us. Notice what he tells us in verse 24. He tells us that in that day when we are brought to be with him, we will be present with him. And we will know it because we will see his glory. Think of what all of that describes. This describes conscious awareness. It describes true presence in a place. And even a consciousness that somehow in some way includes the sight of something. And the name of that thing is glory. We will behold glory in the face of the Son of God. My friends, can you tell from all of your God-given drive, from the passionate desires in your life, even from the frustrations that we can feel at the futility in this life, can you tell that we were made for glory? We are talented in the ways that we contend to satisfy that desire with lesser things. It's like the 20-something who satisfies all his drive for something great by building something imaginary in a video game when he was made for so much more than that. C.S. Lewis described this sort of tendency famously quite some time ago. He spoke of half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. And he finished that up by simply saying, we are far too easily pleased. This request that our Lord makes on our behalf, sealing us to the shared glory of himself, it fits well with the other two requests that we've seen this morning. Because this whole prayer on our behalf has the effect of purifying us and setting us apart in this world. Jesus gets what he prayed for. And it may well be that what God intends to do with his word in your life this morning is to provide for you a needful reminder. This is what the Father is doing in the lives of those who belong to him. This is what Jesus has asked for his people, and he has received his request. The Father is at work in these ways, in the lives of those who belong to him, by the work of the Holy Spirit, in answer to the prayer of his Son. He has sanctified us, and he is leading us for his use, which by necessity means he is growing our devotion to him. He's growing our awareness of his lordship over our lives. He is doing that in the lives of his children. He is holding us together as his people. Working through the ministry of the local body to weave our lives, our families' lives, together with other Christians. 
for the purpose of putting on display the power and the truth of the message that Jesus brought to this world. We cannot display its truth and its power by ourselves. And so he is weaving us together that we might put that picture out there for the world to see. And he's giving us an eternal mindedness as we live in this life that won't be disappointed when we are brought one day into the very presence of Christ Jesus himself. Do you remember this morning that if you are in Christ, that is a sure waiting experience for you. A day will come in your life where you will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory. These are things that his people hold dear. If you're walking with the Lord, they matter to you in your life. And my friends, if you claim the name of Christ and you find that those are realities, the ones we've just heard our Lord ask for us, if you find that those are realities that have made no recent impact on your life, they have not occurred to you. This is not describing the trajectory of action, thought, word. In fact, you can't remember the last time you thought of such things. Could it be that you are discovering right now on Mother's Day of all days? Could it be that you're discovering that you have been numbed and distracted by a worldly life that you have wandered into? It is possible for believers to wander into that place. But I would remind you that that place is a dangerous place to be. Because some who are there are really children of the king. And he will most certainly draw them out of that place. And usually it will be difficult. Usually that extrication will be something that has a cost to it. It's a painful thing. Or worse, some people get there and come to discover that in fact that has been their home all along. And they don't come back. And they reveal that in fact they had never been joined to Christ at all. My friends, the question for us is simple. When you hear what's in the mind of the Savior in a prayer like this, are you finding that you have the mind of Christ? Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2.16, we have the mind of Christ. Such a passage as this chapter is not only helpful by blessing us with the knowledge of what our Lord has prayed for his people, it's also a blessing because it gives us the opportunity to ask ourselves, is this really the one that I am following with my life? With his closing words here, he speaks of knowledge of his truth and authority, and he speaks of love. Listen to verses 25 and 26. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name. And I will continue to make it known. That the love with which you have loved me may be in them. And I in them. May we find ourselves in those closing words of Christ. Would you pray with me?
Father, we come before you rejoicing and marveling at the goodness and the kindness that we see on display from our Savior, the strong, self-giving love that he has shown to his people in this prayer. Thank you for what he has done and what he continues to do for us. We know that in all of those things, he is reflecting for us to see your perfections. He is putting those same perfections on display because all that the Son is, the Father is as well. Father, we join our Lord in his prayer. And because of it, we pray with great confidence as we ask you, keep us from the evil one. Hold us near to you in your service, making us like your son. Keep us near to each other, to those whom you have given us in this life, to complement, to complete, to walk together, to help each other up when we stumble, to rejoice with when rejoicing, to weep with when weeping. Keep us near to each other. And Father, one by one, as we finish the race, we ask you, bring us home to be at rest in the presence of your Son. We pray all of these things with great confidence because we have heard our Lord pray on our behalf in just exactly these ways. Thank you, Father, for your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.